You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends. Welcome to a new episode of the Rua Space Podcast, where we look to make space for the spirit in our lives. I am super excited because today we kick off the interviews of the Rua Space Podcast. Now, from time to time, we're going to be bringing on experts and friends and people from all walks of life, from economics to Bible to health to science to everything you could imagine, to bring their perspective, stories, and expertise to what it looks like to make space for the spirit in our lives to become who Jesus made us to be. And so I could think of no better person to kick this off than Dr. Dwight Friesen, who has joined us for the podcast today. I first met Dwight back in graduate school, where he was one of my professors for my Master's of Divinity at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. Just a man of wisdom and love who deeply cares for his community and has some amazing things to say about what it looks like to live as the people of God in today's world. So we talk about what it looks like to listen well, to approach people with humility, to be rooted in our context where we are, what it means to be the church in this new culture and the new way of the world, the the good, the difficult, and the beautiful. And Dwight, along with a couple other authors, Tim Sorens and Paul Sparks, wrote a book a few years ago called The New Parish. And it is a book I recommend to everyone. And so we talk a little bit about some of the ideas of that book. And I'm super excited that we got to have him on the podcast. Now, one quick note before we jump in is we unfortunately had a difficult internet connection. And I'm not sure which end it was from. However, sometimes Dwight's voice goes a little bit robotic. Now you can hear 99% of what he says. I worked out some of the kinks. Just sometimes you have to listen a little closer. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't get that part to be fixed. We always try to bring the best sound quality that we have. But what I will say is, despite some of the difficulty in the sound, what Dwight has to say is so beautiful, so full of wisdom that it is more than worth it to take a listen because I believe that what he has to say has deep practical meaning for our lives today. So brothers and sisters, thank you so much for joining us for this kickoff episode of the Rua Space Podcast interviews with Dwight Friesen. Thanks again for coming. I really, really appreciate the time. Um, it's been a number of years since I had you as a professor, and so it's awesome to reconnect. Um, oh, it's so good to be with you. I'm hoping you could start by just sharing a little bit about uh, yourself and uh, what you do, and then I'm hoping we can jump into talking about the new parish book a little bit. Sure. Um, well, so I am a, a professor currently at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, where I, um, I'm a practical theologian, meaning that I help MDiv students or people who are tra training to be pastoral leaders um, explore what that might look like in our current context. Increasingly, I actually think of myself less as pre preparing people for the church that we typically think of as being the church today. And increasingly, I think of it more as preparing leaders for the post-Christendom reality of church. Hmm. So what is, what is the church that is emerging when church as a dominant culture no longer exists? What's being invited? What's being invited of leadership in that kind of a context? So that's what I do professionally uh, as a job. Um, I work very closely with Parish Collective, my, uh, with my colleagues who I wrote the new Parish uh, uh, book with, uh, helping connect uh, parish leaders from all around the world. 
Um, and it's fun to be with you, Phil. Oh, no, I, I so appreciate it. So when you mentioned sort of the uh, church that is emerging, um, can can we start just there? Talk a little bit about what the changes are that you see coming and, and what that means for people, maybe what those changes are rooted in? Sure. Well, uh, you know, we're still discovering some of that. Um, obviously, uh, have you are you familiar with the terms like the nuns and the duns? Is that language that you think uh, your readers would be familiar with? Not really, but I think you can, yeah, if you define okay. it, that'd be great. Sure. So, um, you know, when you fill out a, a demographical survey and they ask you uh, what religion you are and you and there's check boxes like you're Muslim, Christian, uh, Hindu, none of the above. The nuns is a sociological reference that refers to the, all the people who say none of the above. Mm. For a couple of decades now, nuns has been the fastest growing religion in, in the United States, actually North America. U.S. So more people are saying they have no religious orientation um, uh, than ever, and that's that's as I say, the fastest growing church. Um, and the duns—that's um, a term that that a sociologist named Josh Packard um, identified to describe Christian leaders, pastors, missionaries, leaders of church boards, um, men and women who are sort of fully vested, who are walking away from. Christendom church structures saying, I can't in good faith continue to do that, but I'm still following in the way of Jesus. I just now believe that that system that I've been supporting is actually doing violence in the world, or I can no longer support it for whatever reason. Sure. But they're just done with that system, and yet they still take their spirituality very, very seriously. They're taking following the way of Jesus very seriously. They just can't do church that way anymore. So the, the, the growth of the nuns and duns is part of what we're talking about when we talk about the church emerging after Christendom. Um, now, Christendom itself is a term that can be understood in multiple ways. Um, and so for some, the term Christendom, uh, you know, it gets its origins kind of after, when, when Constantine makes Christianity the, the, the state religion of Rome. And all of a sudden, for the first time, uh, in a sense, the church colludes with power, and um, the church, which had been a marginal sort of religious sect, the Christian church, followers of Jesus, all of a sudden becomes mainstream, and they now leverage great um, power in, uh, culture, in culture with government support. And to a large and for, throughout the Middle Ages, even through the Reformation, the 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 power of church with state in various ways, uh, however they define it, um, was it functioned. The church was the game in town. Um, very often, you know, an old architecture, even a, a, the center of the church was, or the center of a city was the cathedral, um, and it, it just was a great symbol of the role of church in society at that time. Shoot, even when like my grandmother was uh, was being was, was born and was living. Her whole life revolved around the church. It was the air that she breathed. It was just culture. Mm, yeah. Church were almost yeah. inseparable. Um, it's not that way anymore. Um, you know, you you talk to almost anyone now uh, in the in North America, and you know, there you you'll they'll talk about how they'll, they'll highlight the number of languages spoken in their elementary school. Talk about how many different uh, races and eth ethnicities and countries are represented in their neighborhood. Uh, there's a growing plurality of uh, not only uh, skin and racial 
uh, backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds, but also worldviews and religions and the, the, the plurality that exists um, is a direct challenge to the um, uh, monolithic nature of Christendom. Christendom was sort of a monoculture and our culture now is so diverse that the Christendom system is is crumbling. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I and I think that scares a lot of people. <laughs> scares the crap out of a lot of us. Uh, you know how is my how is my seminary going to be funded? You know what happens to uh, if the church is no longer the primary game in town? What worldview are we thinking through uh, to make decisions of public policy or? All of that stuff is up for grabs in a new kind of way. Um, but to be honest, I'm not sure it's a bad thing. Throughout history, when the church has colluded with power, we've rarely handled it well. Um, and there's something about um, following the servant Christ into a more uh, self-emptying, canonic way uh, where we serve from the margins and rather than from a place of power and act our will from a place of, um, you know, taking up a, a towel and a basin, uh, serve people the way Christ would in a sacrificial manner rather than in a powerful manner might actually be a gift to us. I mean, it's a gift we don't want, but it might woo us towards a kind of humble followership that we have not uh, known for in recent years. Yeah, that's kind of like the book of Revelation. It reminds me of chapter 18 when they're like, come out of her, my people. Like, don't participate in those aspects of that power and violence and oppression. And the churches that Jesus sort of encourages and commends are the ones that are, are weak and powerless and, and, and they're on the margin because of how they're living. Oh, that's exactly that's exactly it. I think um, very often when the church and power dance too closely together, the church ends up being a collusion for the empire rather than a prophetic witness of the way of Jesus. And I think that actually is very much where we are. And so, but there's always a remnant. There are always uh, radical followers of Jesus who are saying, "Okay, what does it mean for us to give <laughs> give up everything and follow Jesus?" and <laughs> humble ways uh, of gathering together and being together that we can embrace uh, and try to practice, practice in the day to day uh, that make us more likely to be like Jesus. And actually, that's one of the primary reasons why the idea of recovering parish or recovering local life has been so vital to me, because um, it's a like literally the neighbor neighborhood and the neighbors that are there are the ground for discovering what love is. Um, and and starting with, you know, when Jesus summed up all of the teachings of the Bible, of the Old Testament, you know, he, he said uh, it's about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And what does that look like? I mean, it's shocking how many Christians don't even know their direct neighbors. Um, how many people draw, they, you know, they, they commute half an hour, 45 minutes to the church they choose to find people who like them who believe things that they agree with. Um, but they, they don't spend time submitting to the diversity that is their neighborhood and learning to actually love the people they live right next to. I mean, I know that sounds really basic, but I think it might start there. And um, at least that's been, that's been one of the things that I've been seeking to live into and um, discovering uh, others who are doing the same thing around the world. Yeah, absolutely. It sort of helps put a, a face to the other, 
it becomes a rather than a story that we are afraid of or fighting against or ignoring when we get to know our neighbor it's going to be hard work because it's going to challenge us it's going to cause us to maybe be uncomfortable but it's also going to put a real life flesh and blood person <laughs> in front of us and and that seemed to be what jesus was so good at was meeting people exactly where they are you know he he saw zacchaeus in the tree he heard the people calling out to him he was not afraid of going into samaria um but but he was always where he was yeah that's right that's right yeah i think um, I, I've, come, uh, I've come to think of the neighbor, the neighborhood or place as the platform for real theology. Um, theology, by definition, tends to abstract ideas because we're talking about uh, a theory in the sense of God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, or when we talk about like um, social justice issues, we actually abstract the reality of those things because we're focusing on the idea of human trafficking. We're not focusing on Mary and Bill. We're focusing on an abstracted notion. However, when you're focusing on your, when you're seeking to follow Christ into faithful presence in your neighborhood, um, human trafficking has faces, um, and um, both traffickers and, tra and those trafficked become real people that you can actually have a relationship with in your own neighborhood. And then the question is not, is not how do I beat the idea of this thing? How do we defeat it? Rather, the, the question becomes, what does it look like to move in solidarity in a redemptive way toward the other and join God in God's shalomic work in the world? And the neighborhood becomes the platform to make real everything that we say we believe. Like in the neighborhood, if, I, if my neighbor's dog... If I let my if I let my dog do its business on my neighbor's yard and I don't clean it up, um, I have to live with that <laughs> in an interpersonal way, right? Like the, the neighborhood grounds everything that we say about being in relationship with another in in, in, in into the real world. Um, forgiveness, grace, repentance—these are no longer concepts that we teach on Sunday, but they become the necessary um almost like uh lubricant that makes relationships like it's the oil that makes them work like you're, you're, when you're in relationship with people in the neighborhood you're going to misunderstand them and disappoint them and fail them and then the question is well now what i have to go now and repent and apologize and see if we can make amends and it all becomes real yeah, that's no, I think that's beautiful. I, I, I think my um, the, the two things that I would love to sort of go with from there then is what what do you think removed us from being present in our local space? Um, because that's where the spirit is moving, right? Moving in the present, moving, you know, God rooted us in a place for a reason. And so I guess my question for you would be what, what sort of drew us away from being present, from being present, not even just to ourselves, but as you're saying to our neighborhood, to our neighbor, to the point where we don't know our neighbors, like we don't really know where our food comes from. We, we pass so many things. And then how do we become rooted Again, so for just an average person listening to this who may know one of their neighbors or two, um, I guess what would that look like for them then to be rooted again, and what kind of does that do for them? I guess. Yeah. Well, 
Um, I don't think uh, there are some things that have accelerated our abstraction from place in, in the modern era that I think are unique. But there is a deeply human tendency to disconnect from the responsibility from the realities of relationship that is part of um, how we have come to live post fall, if you will. Mm-hmm. Like the reality is, as much as we want relationship, we also want to uh, avoid our responsibilities and uh, be more than we really are. And that is a very natural thing. It's part of why it's part of what Christ is inviting us to. Um, to find a new way of being and so um but in the modern era you know we came to love um you know beginning with the enlightenment we be, we began to really love ideas over the real um and that has had all kinds of implications for um how we live and think um at a really practical level Post-World War II in North America, the, the the shift to the automobile and the speed with which we could get from point A to point B on an individual level um, transformed spirituality in this country. From just the car, within a decade, made it possible so that people didn't have to didn't walk to church or ride their horse and, and bucky to church <laughs> across town, and that made church that that propelled church into a con- con- consumer. Uh, uh, practice or into a commodity uh, at a faster rate than we've had than we had seen in human history. You could just escape uh, from the people and places you didn't like, yeah, or didn't agree yeah, with, yeah. or didn't. Exactly. If you had a conflict, uh, the car was your way out. Um, and whereas before, you either had to work it through, or quit going to church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, and that's significant. Um. And I mean, there's all kind of other implications from that, and we're still struggling with it. You know, the the as a as a culture, we began to develop suburbs um, around our cities, which were designed not for walkability, but designed for um, uh, housing apart from the city where you can drive in. You know, and so that what we what we have felt culturally with the relationship between the city and the suburb and and rural communities, our churches have felt that same kind of tension. Um, Anyway. And can I interrupt you right there? What, sorry. (laughs) Um, What, what do you feel like then are the symptoms from not being rooted in a place? Like um, when we have a car and we don't, we can physically sleep in one location, but not really live there. And then we do work in another location, but not really live there. Go to church in another location. Like what do you feel like have been sort of the implications of that for people in their lives? Oh, there's many. Um, Few of them are good. Um, um, There's a deep sense of fragmentation that is uh, very widespread these days. The idea that we're pulled in so many different directions. We feel exhausted. We feel lonely. Um, uh, Increasingly, the idea that I no one I don't really have I don't have very many friends anymore. Um, We hear from from people more and more. that um, that it really reinforces the idea that um, I am what I buy, not I am in relationship with these people. So if I don't have relationships with people, I want to have a sense of identity. I buy a bigger house, I buy a fancier car, and so on. Uh, it, it used to be that your, a person's identity was much more deeply tied to the to the place from which they were, from which they were. Yeah. I mean, Jesus was known as Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. Was right in his name almost. <laughs> yeah. 
Hall of Tarshish. Um, you know, we there's an association. I mean, I long to be known one day as Dwight of Lake Hills. Mm. You know, like to be to be to to have, and that's not something I can set out for myself. It has to be a reputation established as others look at me, look at my life, and how I live. Like, do I seek the flourishing? Do I sh- seek to join God's shalomic imagination for my na- for my neighborhood and the people and the animals and the plants that are there? Um, that would be my hope. Um, that I would be embodying good news in a very practical, real, and local way so that I feel the pain, I grieve the losses and the tragedies of my neighborhood, and I seek the flourishing of all who are there, whether they agree with me or not. And that, to me, is uh, is part of the invitation. And it leads me out of a, you know, you know, think of what, the idea of being uh, of a fragmented life, it actually sounds a lot like the notion of sin. Like sin is that which separates. Yeah. And uh, reconciliation or redemption rejoins. It, it, it reconnects that which has been pulled apart. There's a, there's a deep sense in which I think our fragmented lives symbolize, um, <laughs> I mean, this is a little crass, but it, it symbolizes the sinfulness of being because it creates separations artificial. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then we use our, then we create the, uh, then we define our theological language in terms that further separates. So we, you know, we, we choose to, rather than having the church be a thing that unites us, um, we actually allow that we've designed our churches now so that we will pass by half a dozen churches to find the one that agrees with me, which is basically us saying that we're organizing around the exclusion of the other. Yeah. Um, so it's one of the it's one of the crazy things about the parish uh, and the neighborhood. When you focus on actually trying to be with the people in your neighborhood, like it doesn't matter what their faith tradition is, it doesn't matter what which church they belong to. They're your neighbor. Mm. If they're seeking to follow in the way of Christ, whether they be Baptist or Roman Catholic or um, fill in the blank, whatever other tradition it is, you're there together. And you're trying to spur each other on into following the way of Jesus. It doesn't matter where they gather on Sunday. In the neighborhood, you're together. And there's a functionality to the church there that we have to recover. And and that's what I think, you, that's what you guys would call faithful presence, right? Yes, yeah, that's part of it. Um, yeah, faithful presence is, it sounds so simple. <laughs> And honestly, it's the hardest thing to live, Phil. Um, it to be faithfully present, uh, like I, I think that's what you know. When I when I look at how Jesus lived, um, that's what I see. I see a person who was faithfully present to the Father, to the Spirit. I see one who would who who understood how to discern um, that sometimes presence means welcoming the children. And sometimes it means flipping over the tables in the temple. Um, sometimes it's looking the bleeding woman in the eye. Um, and sometimes it's telling his one of his best friends to get behind me, Satan. Like, presence is not civility and niceness, but it is a kind of... Um, I mean, the way Paul... I think Paul would use the phrase, keeping in step with the Spirit. I think that's... That's at the core. So it's this 
constant discernment of how do I um, surrender, um, how do I open myself up to the shalomic imagination of God? Um, and I think that's, and, and how do I do that in any given moment? So like I'm at a, I'm at my workplace and I'm having a conflict with my manager and the conflict may be legit. Like there may be real grounds for it. Um, and the question is, what does faithful presence invite? There's no, there's no easy answer for it. There's no fundamentalist uh, way to say, um, this is what you always do. Faithful presence is an invitation into a life of discerning and following the spirit and it and 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 saying yes and also being tender and and open to saying I I, I screwed up I went too far I, I I missed it and then that's the invitation to presence. You know, this is a from a, on a personal story uh, of this. You know, when we were begin when we were, were when I was beginning to experiment with some of this stuff um, in a more intentional way. I mean. On one level, this is just basic Christian discipleship, right? Trying to live like Christ in the everyday stuff of life. There's, there's, that's, in a sense, there's nothing new here. What has been new, in a sense, is embracing my, my place, my, the physicality of my bodied self in, a, in, a, in my neighborhood as a discipline, as a spiritual discipline to recover presence as opposed to fragmentation. That's been kind of the shift. Um, when I began to experiment with that in my own neighborhood, I actually, uh, my wife and I decided to get a dog. So we could think about a dog, but we know have to walk our dog through the neighborhood, and it would be an excuse to <laughs> and so forth. Right? Get to and see people, really get to see what's going on, get to listen, yeah. get to know people. Yeah, I mean, even just walking your neighborhood on a regular basis um, and beginning to do so intentionally changes your relationship to it, right? Um, as you begin, I even have a liturgy of the leash. <laughs> That's good. I like that. It's like a good hashtag: liturgy of the leash. <laughs> yeah. um, but literally, I, I, I just have this little thing like, uh, Lord of Lake Hills, help me to see and love my place the way you already do. Um, and But then to actually walk my neighborhood in an expectant way, like I actually believe that the Spirit of God is already there and inviting me into deeper presence, um, and that whoever I meet is, is Jesus along the way. I mean, that's at the core of it. So I get my dog. Um, a couple. Of, uh, this is a number of years ago now. And um, I, we thought this would be this was going to be awesome. And almost immediately, our neighbor's kids across the street quit talking to us and quit waving at us and coming over and taking books from our book library. Huh. And it took us about six weeks to notice. Um, and and we were like, "What on earth is going on?" And I was prepping for a class and. I was reminded in my prep that dogs are considered unclean in Islam, in the Muslim faith. Mm. Oh, that's it. And so I, I went over to my neighbor's name is Faisal Muhammad, and I was like, Faisal, um, I don't know if this is the case, but, um, and I certainly didn't intend to create a rift between us. Has my, has our getting a dog impacted our relationship and about that and he went on to explain that they were dogs are in fact unclean and it probably was a, a, a rift between us and it just I mean, it was a powerful thing right like the very the thing that i thought was going to actually help me become a better neighbor actually ended up creating a, a, a divide um 
And so Faisal was gracious. He, he, he showed me from the Quran um, what, uh, you know, what the teaching about dogs were and, and how I could uh, take care of our dog in a way that would be um, uh, respectful to them. And we basically, we, we, we recovered our relationship. In fact, it's be stronger now than it ever has been. Nice. The kids come back over now, and it's all <laughs> it's it's good. In fact, even better. Um, that's one of the things about the neighborhood. I've lived in my neighborhood for um, twenty, I guess, about twenty years, and I assumed. Um, this might be sort of a white privilege thing to say, but I was assuming that I could always be the host. Mm. I could assume I was assuming that, like, by having the dog, and that I could I could kind of meet people on my terms. And part of what faithful presence also invites is the recognition that I also am a guest in my own place. I need to be. I need to be open myself up to be received into other people's lives in the ways that they need to receive me, or they can receive me. And Faisal has been one of my teachers in that regard. You know, like I can't be with Faisal, especially with his wife. I mean, we've been neighbors now for about a decade, and I still don't know her name. Hmm. So it sounds to me, though, that at the core of that, just even in that one story, um, you had to learn or practice listening well. Yes. That being present meant listening to not just, hey, here's my idea, I'm going to run with it, but being aware of where's the spirit moving here. Hey, why is, why have my neighbors changed? Oh, you know, let me, and so there's kind of um uh, a listening, which requires being present. It requires intentionality. It requires uh, being aware and mindful of what you're doing and why and how it's affecting others, not just running off thinking you've got the answer. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, in fact, you know, there is a lot of, um, this is a strong word, but a lot of sort of violent action that has been done by well-meaning Christians who have a goal to serve people and we call that colonization i mean that's the, that's one of the terms used for that right but um but it happens all the time like any time that we pursue our agenda over the agenda of receiving and uh and being with another we are we run that risk of uh, of assuming that we know better than them it's, I think it's really the, the listening piece, I think, is just remarkable. Like one of the primary ways that God chooses to orient God's self toward humanity is as listener. Hmm. Hears our prayers. God hears our laments and our anger. God tends to us when we won't talk to God. And God opens God's self up always to be to, to hear us and receive us. And yet we think of ourselves primarily as speakers, as ones who talk. Uh, that we think of, we often think of uh, bearing witness uh, to Christ primarily verbally rather than listening to the other. And I think that might be a mistake. Uh, <laughs> we do have something to bear witness to, don't get me wrong. The hope of, uh, of, of salvation in, in and through Christ and what that might look like um, is, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's everything, right? And yet, how we understand what that is. Um, also include deep listening. 
And not just so so we listen to God, we listen to scripture, but then we also need to what listen to our own story, understand, but then really it seems like what you're also saying is listen very deeply to the other and not in order to then control them, but in order to truly hear them, learn from them, and then reorient toward what does the spirit have for our relationship. So it's not like I'm listening so as to prove you wrong or so as to uh, manipulate, but truly listening so as to be humbled and better enter relationship in a way that serves the other even better. That's right. That's right. Yeah. In fact, that kind of listening requires holding your agenda, your beliefs, your own practices um, loosely. Because to actually listen to the other um, uh, invites the possibility that you might be wrong. It invites um, the possibility of your own transformation. You can no longer assume a place of superiority or correctness. And ironically, to some people I know that that might sound like they might be opening up to lose their faith or something like that. But ironically, it's exactly the opposite. The more you open up and hold loosely the things that you think define yourself, the more you become like Christ. Hmm. The very heart of what uh, Paul says in Philippians is the, the, the sort of the canonic way of Jesus, the self-emptying way of Jesus. Who, you know, Jesus, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God to, to be grasped. But the idea that, I mean, if anyone has a right to hang on to their agenda or their sense of identity, it's Jesus. <laughs> yeah, God himself. Yeah, God's God self. himself. And yet... <laughs> In Jesus, we see one who can even hold that loosely hmm. for the sake of relationship. Like, I don't know why I should be, like, why do I have to be so afraid of uh, defending my own experience of Christ that I can't listen deeply to someone who has a whole different experience? Yeah, and just like, trust that God is bigger than yes. your own your own thoughts of God or even theirs, but that God is bigger and you can get there together. <laughs> One of my first theolo- uh, theology classes that I ever took was with a guy named Glenn Scorgy. Um, and if my memory serves, this is what I remember, whether he said it or not, I don't, re- I don't know. But <laughs> We'll give it to him anyway. <laughs> first, yeah. First day of class, what I remember is he said, um, whatever your theology is, the one thing you can know for sure is that it's wrong. <laughs> yeah. And what he was meaning by that is he unpacked it. And, of course, we were a bunch of evangelicals in the room, and we were all, like, livid. He would say such a thing. Yeah, throwing stuff at him on the first day, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Um, But what he was meaning is that if God is even remotely close to what uh, theologians say God is and what the Bible seems to testify that God is creator of all, before time, you know, omniscient, all those kind of things. If, If God is all of that and we are all finite creatures with limited experience, how could we possibly be arrogant enough to think that we've got God figured out and got it right. Yeah. Then it's in our image, right? Rather than us in God's image. (laughs) I found um, that stance of humility is, I want more of that. Um, And I continue to be amazed at how quickly I move towards the arrogance of thinking that my way is right. Yeah. And I need my neighbors to see it differently. Um, I need fossil in my life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and my assumption in all this, because I, I, as we kind of move toward wrapping up, is that as we can 
listen well to our place, to um, the ground that we live on, where we where we spend our time, to the people around us, the ones we agree with and the ones we disagree with, as we can listen and love and grow together. My assumption is we discover life as God created it to be. That's that's more of my assumption. That's right. I think that's right. And discover is the key word. I think for a lot of Christians, we've, we assume that we know what the good life is. We know what gospel is. We know what the kingdom of God is meant to be. Um, and I think what we need to foster is actually a, a more of a shalomic imagination. Like, what what is that dream of God? How do we go about discovering it? Finding that rather than, like, claiming uh, to know what it is, uh, almost living unto a sort of resonating with the work of God already in the world. Like, how do we, rather than having a vision for something, list, listening to join what already is? Yeah, God's There's, already moving. God's a living God. So we are invited to right. join. That's right. If you were to give people kind of uh, one, one last uh, good word here of where where and how can they get started with this? If someone is like, man, you know, I've been here for eight years and I, I don't know my neighbors or I've only talked to them once. Um, how would you encourage people to start listening well to become more rooted in a place? Like what are maybe three things that are practical someone could just go out and do? Um, well, the first would be just sort of a, a commitment to start where you are. Um, like to actually say, like to, to have a conversation maybe with God about where you are mm. to, to, or to say within your heart, I want to learn to love this place want to know it. And I want to learn to love it. Um, and that that becomes a kind of commitment. Um, um, and one of the best, so I think that's sort of a, it's, that's kind of a mental shift to say where I am is God's place. It's already God's home, and I want to join God here. Um, I think second is to is to get to know it, and, and I think probably the best practice is walking it, um, waving to people, talking to everybody who you can. I mean, get, if you're extroverted, that's easier than than <laughs> um, introverted folks. Um, and yet, if you're outside, if you if if you if you are lucky enough to have a uh, a yard or a garden space. And you're outside, and you're, or, and you orient a little bit more of your time to the front yard rather than the. <laughs> um, uh, that it could be a great way to just uh, meet people. Um, anyway, uh, walking it uh, and doing so sort of prayerfully and openly, um, and then always wondering what's what's the invitation of my place. Uh, that's huge. Um, and then I would also, um, I think it's also really important to really um, open yourself up to all of its inhabitants, to be intentional. Like who actually lives here? Um, who are the, who are the homeowners? Who are the renters? Who are the people who seem to come in and out uh, based on employment and it seems transient? Who are the neighbors who don't have homes or who are living in their cars or on the streets? Um, who are the animals that live, that call your neighborhood home? What does it look like to care for them, to love them? Uh, to put out bird seed in the snowy winter. And, you know, I mean, I don't know yeah. what it is. Yeah. But to begin thinking, this is all of God's creation, you know. Uh, or to think about the the plants and animals or the air quality or the water, the watershed of your neighborhood. Like what, different things resonate with different people, but attend to the, attend to who's there. Um, I, 
and maybe the last thing I'll say in terms of a, a, a really beautiful practice is to is to really is to map your neighborhood. Um, like, I mean, like you live in the, the Chicago land area, you can't. You're not. Uh, you have to choose to focus on a on a on an area that's big enough to do a lot of life and small enough to become a repu- uh, to have a reputation to be known. You can't. You can't have um, Chicago be your parish. Um, yeah, yeah. In, in order to do that, you have to become a celebrity, and you have to become disconnected from your place. Uh, you can't be known by everybody and be a person of faithful presence. Hmm. So, what's the space? Natural, like, the, what are the natural boundaries of your neighborhood, where, in which you can do most of your life, where you can live, work, and play, as you've said earlier. Um, and not that you have to limit yourself just to that. I mean, it's, these are porous boundaries. But do you know what your bound? What do you know what those edges are? Yeah. And can you mix a few changes where you could maybe spend even more time in your neighborhood, like rather than shop over there, maybe you could go to the one inside your neighborhood and and build increase the chances where you'll meet the same people on a regular basis. And some of those kinds of uh, sh- uh, practice shifting places, uh, practice shifting uh, practice. Uh, ideas uh, are articulated in the book um, but um, it's a journey uh, to, to rediscover your own place and it's a journey of love and for many of us it's also a journey of failure because uh, it's hard to do and that's and then that becomes your invitation again to faithful presence <laughs> yeah to understanding we are limited we are finite we are humble and that those limitations and boundaries are not bad things, but good things because they jive with how we were created. Exactly. Well, said. well, Dwight, thank you so much. That was a beautiful conversation. I really appreciate um, you taking the time. I really uh, appreciate the insight. I know uh, everyone should go read The New Parish. It was uh, really, real. I, I really love the fact that when I was with you in, in class, you had kind of the uh, pre-published form. So I think I actually have the eight and a half by 11 pre-edited <laughs> sheet somewhere. So I, I might have to go through that one. That's fun. But um, where, where else can people find you? I know you've written a few other books and um i believe you have a website so if people want to connect more or read more where can they find you um yeah so uh yeah i've got a, a number of uh, you know going to amazon and certain and just doing sort of a search for uh under my name we'll, we'll pull up the, the the various writings uh but probably the website uh parishcollective.org uh is the is the best place to get um uh, more information and hear a lot more stories about the kind of neighborhood work we've been talking about today. So parishcollective.org would be probably one of those key places. Excellent. I will put that in the show notes and then uh, I'll put some links to uh, this book and Thy Kingdom Connected and what was it? Roots and Radishes, right? That was one of the other Roots ones. Roots and Radishes, yeah. Got, uh, I'm hoping to have, have uh, two more finished by the end of this year um that are um that are still in the works and uh yeah we'll see how they won't they won't be they, those ones won't come out until probably 2020 but okay uh, there's always always something in the works all right well blessings thank you so much again yeah good to be with you man peace
Brothers and sisters, Phil here again. I just wanted to thank you again for listening to this episode where we are joined by Dr. Dwight Friesen. Definitely go check out his books, his website. I pray that some of what he said today really resonated with you, that you can be deeper rooted in the place where God has you. As always, you can find us on ruaspace.com. You can find us at ruaspace on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you like this episode, please leave us a review, subscribe, those are a huge blessing to us. And until next time, grace and peace be with you.